Have you ever had a really, really long night? I mean, just a long night. Sybil had a really, really long night. In fact, she was up all night long. Now, she wasn't up all night putting back cups of coffee and watching reruns of Full House. That's not what she was doing. No, she was going nonstop from dark to dawn. She darted out of her house about 9 o'clock at night, and she didn't get back until the sun was really just coming up or right after the sun had come up. She was out all night long. Now, she wasn't out all night long taking a tour of you know, drive through fast food restaurants. That's not what she was trying to do. She wasn't out all night long just hanging out with her gal pals at the pancake house, getting a short stack, and then going over to the Cineplex for an all-night movie marathon of Ernest P. Worrell movies. That's not what she was going to do all night long. No, she had something completely different happening to her. Sybil was out in the open air. She was out in the open air on top of a horse. She was riding nonstop at a frantic pace for nine hours covering about 40 miles, and it was raining the whole time she was riding. It was April, 1777. She had just turned 16 a few weeks before this particular night. Sybil Ludington's father was the commander of the militia in Dutchess County in New York. News had just come to their house that there were some British soldiers across the state line in Connecticut, and they were burning and looting and destroying the town of Danbury. His troops were on furlough. They were going to have to be alerted. Somebody had to let them know that they needed to come and respond. So did he ask his 16-year-old daughter to go and ride out in the middle of the night, or did she volunteer? Well, truthfully, we just don't know. What we do know is in the middle of our country's struggle for independence, this young woman, this teenage girl, did not sink back into her bed and just go to sleep for the night. But rather she went. She gave of herself for the protection and for the freedom of other people. Last couple of Sundays, we have looked at this idea of how the older women and the older men who are living right now are shaping the future how their attitudes and their affections, the things that they love and the things that they like and the things that they do are shaping what the future is like. So older men and older women, when people look at you, what are they seeing? Especially if we claim to be Christians, are they seeing a casual profession of faith or are they seeing a true possession of faith? The reality is people are watching. Paul is writing to his friend Titus. He's wanting to help Titus because he wants Titus to help other Christians learn about what it means to love the gospel and to live out the gospel. And why does that matter? Why does it matter for professing Christians to love the gospel and to live out the gospel? Well, the gospel is good news. In fact, the gospel is the greatest good news in the universe. The gospel comes riding in like a messenger at night, announcing to people that a day of judgment is coming, a day where God is going to deal with all peoples for all of the guilt of their sin, a day when God is going to deal with people who reject his ways and cling to their ways, people who have done everything they can to be the king and queen of their own lives instead of submitting to God as the one true 
the gospel comes in like a rider in the night or even in the day to announce that there is a time that is coming when the wrath of God is going to perfectly carry out perfect justice. And perfect justice means that there is coming a day when the curse of sin will actually squeeze the life out of your soul. The curse of sin will kill your soul. Now, you may be thinking, you just said the gospel was good news. I ain't hearing any good news right now. Well, the first part of the message is is bad news. It's the second part of the message that's good news. You see, the first part tells us that the curse of sin is real and that the curse of sin really will bring eternal darkness and terror. But the second part reminds us that Jesus came to remove the curse of sin. That's why the gospel is great news. This story about Jesus that we have is is not something that we just believe in because it makes us feel better on Sunday morning. But we believe in Jesus and we cling to Jesus. And when we do, when we cling to Jesus and believe in Him and trust in Him as our only source of escape from that day of judgment, then what we have is the promise that the curse of sin lets go. It no longer has a grip over us. We no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to be controlled by the power of sin. So, Christians, is that the message that we're giving? Older men, is that the the message that we're living out in our lives? Older women, when younger women are around you and they talk to you and they see your attitude and they see your opinions on things, do they see that the gospel is the greatest good news in the universe? Or do they see and do they develop a love for the opinions or the attitudes of this world? You know, sometimes I think we really forget that the power of the gospel is supposed to have a big impact on who we are. The gospel is not just a story, but it's something we're supposed to love. So does it matter if younger women love the gospel? Does it really matter what younger women love? fact, it matters more than you can possibly imagine. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. Paul writes, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Again, Paul has just gotten through telling the older men and the young and the older women, hey, this is what you need to do to love Jesus and to follow Jesus, and this is what you need to do to help other people love and follow Jesus. And particularly to the older women, this is what Paul wrote in verse 3. Older women likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Reverent in their behavior, meaning that they, they carry themselves in a way that, that honors God. They, they focus on their spiritual inner beauty more than their outer worldliness. Paul says they need to not be malicious gossips. They don't need to act like Satan. They don't need to keep throwing lies and conflict toward other people and creating hurt and pain in the lives of others. They also need to be not enslaved to much wine. In other words, they don't need to be addicted to anything in this world. Not alcohol, not food, not drugs, not sleeping, not shopping, not exercise, nothing. That there's nothing, no appetite of this world that would control them and control their life, that would be their biggest desire. 
And last, Paul says they should be teaching what is good. In other words, they should be thinking and living and talking and acting like women who really believe that the gospel is the greatest news in the universe. Now, why should older women be living like that? Well, because if they do, they will actually help younger women to love Jesus. So who are younger women? Well, Paul has not given us ages for any of these folks that he's describing here, but we could say, if we wanted to pick out a number, maybe 50 and under, or maybe 40 and under, might be a, a little better in terms of some of the things that we'll share this morning. It's talking about younger women because they're not exactly the kind of women that have had tons of life experiences. See, a lot of things in their life they are still experiencing for the very first time. Maybe they've only recently left their parents' house. Maybe they're still in their parents' house. Maybe they've been gone from their folks, maybe 10 years or less, or maybe 10 years or more. But they haven't had a, a huge lifetime of experiences. They haven't experienced a lot of things, but they have experienced some things. They may be the kind of young woman who's still in school. She may be finishing up school. She may be single. She may be married. She may be somebody who's starting her first job, or maybe she is having her first child. There's a lot of experiences that they are going through. What kind of character traits should mark a young woman? Well, Paul is going to give us a, a pretty good portrait, a pretty good snapshot. But before we look at the snapshot, I should probably say that many people today would say that Paul's picture is outdated. They would say that Paul's picture is not in HD. It's, it's not in, in good color. That it's just some old, grainy black and white that, that really needs to be stuck in a photo album and put away on some shelf somewhere way back in fact, we see this throughout our culture. History professor Linda Gordon wrote, The nuclear family must be destroyed, and people must find better ways of living together. She wrote that in 1969. The notion of trying to destroy the family is, is nothing new. To her credit, or maybe just for information, uh, Professor Gordon actually got married and has a grown child. But the nuclear family, the family in general probably since the late 60s, has been doing exactly what she proposed. It's being discontinued. The family as we know it in this world is being discontinued. Listen to this list. Eliminate marriage as a sacred institution. Promote marriage as unfashionable. Encourage divorce. Downplay adultery. Increase pregnancy outside of marriage. Those are descriptions of communist Russia in the early 1920s. <laughs> Maybe you weren't expecting that. This was something that was happening a, a long time ago. In fact, Vladimir Lenin, the leader of Russia during the early 20s, once said this, destroy the family and you destroy society. He wasn't saying that as a theory. He was saying that as a plan. It was what the goal was. I want you to listen to these things one more time. Eliminate marriage as a sacred institution. Promote marriage as unfashionable. Encourage divorce. Downplay adultery. Increase pregnancy outside of marriage. You know, it's easy for us to cast stones at, at communist Russia. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we can find all of those things in the average evangelical church in America. You see, the, the attitudes, the design, the plan that God has established for the family is being ignored not just by culture, 
but it's being ignored even by those in the church, by those who profess to say they love God and, and want to do things God's way. Far too often, we do not. Now, the reality is things happen. We're not casting stones at anybody who's ever experienced any of those things. But what we're saying is, where those used to be odd things that might happen every now and then, they become the norm across our culture, not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. So as the family continues to be discontinued, is our culture improving? I mean, generally speaking, is society getting better? I'm not even talking about a Christian standpoint here. From a pure secular viewpoint, is our culture and our society becoming less selfish and more loving? Is that what we are seeing? Contrary to popular belief, God's ways are not designed to make you miserable. God's ways are actually designed for your good. So what are some good designs that God has for younger women? Well, let's look at this picture together. First, Paul says they're to love their husbands. Listen, marriage is not for everybody. Jesus was not married. He devoted his whole life to the Father's plans. Apostle Paul was not married. He devoted his whole life to the work of the gospel. Some people are married. Some people are single. Some people are single with children. Some people are divorced. Some people are remarried. But regardless of what your marital status is as a man or a woman, if you are a believer, your primary purpose in life is to take the truth of the gospel, to take your love for Jesus, and apply it to everything. That you're supposed to function regardless of whether you're single or married or divorced or remarried, whatever it is that you may be, whatever your status may be, the gospel is always primary if you're a Christian. See, the Christian says what I do first and most is the gospel. My love for Jesus is first and most. And here's the amazing thing. When our love for Jesus is first and most, guess what happens to all our relationships? (laughs) They take a different direction, right? Because we're bringing the gospel into our marriages instead of just bringing Sunday morning church into our family. It's the gospel. It's the wonderful cross at 3 o'clock on a Monday. It's the wonderful cross at 5 a.m. on a Wednesday. We bring the gospel into all that we are. With that said, young wives should love their husbands, is Paul's instruction. Now, some wives do love their husbands. Some wives barely attempt to love their husbands. Some wives completely ignore their husbands. But the call of God on the life of a Christian wife is to make every effort to love their husband. Now, someone might be thinking, well, you don't know my husband. Well, actually, I do know your husband. He's just like you. He's selfish, he's sinful, and he's full of pride. Because that describes all of us. See, the reality is we live in a culture of sin because we have this sinful nature. So none of us really get to say, oh, my spouse is worse than me. Your spouse may be doing terrible, awful, God-dishonoring things, but when you peel everything back to it, all of us are standing in the garden and all of us make the same decision. We all turn to our own way. And so what do we do with all this selfishness? What do we do with all of this sin? Well, in our culture today, it seems that marriage is being defined more by feelings than by choice, at least maybe the choice to love. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but sometimes you are hard to love. 
And guess what? So am I. The reality is when we look at our lives, nobody in this room is perfect. And guess what? Nobody in your home is perfect. And nobody in Washington, D.C. is perfect. And nobody anywhere on this globe is perfect. So when it comes to the most serious relationships in our life, the the deepest relationships in our life, we have this call to love. But we don't see this call being lived out in the church today, especially in our culture. In fact, it's become all too easy for somebody to say, well, my wife's not meeting my needs or my husband's not meeting my needs, and and we trade in for another model. And sometimes it, it doesn't take but just a few months. I've heard three or four stories just in the last few weeks of people who were divorced before they got to their first anniversary. That's becoming way too common in our culture. There's an easiness to just saying, well, I don't feel love anymore. But the reality is this. Wives, your husbands are going to do a lot of things that are not going to move you to want to love them. And wives, guess what? You're going to do a lot of things that's not going to move your husband to want to love you. But see, regardless of what other people do, particularly in marriage, it doesn't change the call that we have to love. The call we have to love is a a call from God. Think about it this way. I'm pretty sure all of us have done at least one thing, maybe just one thing, that Mike could stir Jesus to say, no way. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do all the suffering for you. Now, you, you don't care about me. You don't respect me. You don't listen to me. There is no way that I am going to go and be brutally beaten. There's no way I'm going to be whipped to the point that, that skin is going to be pulled off of my back. I'm not going to be executed on a cross for you when you barely give me a little bit of time on Sunday morning. It's a different picture, right? Now, is that what Jesus said to us, his future family members? (laughs) Did Jesus say all those things on the cross? Or was there another message? 1 John 3, 16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. See, the whole reason we even know what love is, is because Jesus did not say any of those things. Because Jesus, with radical love and radical obedience, went to the cross for the curse of our sin. You see, God's best for marriage, God's best for family, is to love in the way that Jesus loved us. Is that easy? No. Does sometimes it it fall apart and everything gets broken? Yes. But it doesn't change that that's God's desire. His desire is for us to love in the same way that, that Jesus loved. Paul writes, ladies, love your husbands, but love them with the gospel. Next, he says they need to love their children. Some moms love their kids. Some moms worship their kids. And some moms barely pay attention to their kids. The call of God on the life of a Christian mother is to make every effort to love her kids. Now, somebody might say, what do you mean? I don't know any moms that don't love their kids. What are you talking about? Well, it depends on what definition of love you're talking about. If we're talking about a definition of love that says change diapers, make sure they get to school, make sure that they do their homework, make sure they get driven to all the extracurricular activities, make sure that they get updated with every current electronic device that you can put in their hands. If that's the definition of love, then yeah, lots of moms love their kids. But if we're using the definition of love that says this, that the greatest and most passionate urging of their life is that the curse of sin 
would not be on their children. Well, then we're talking about a different kind of love. How many moms, how many dads are concerned about the souls of their children as much as their grades, as much as their sports, as much as who they will marry or what kind of job they will have. How many of us are passionately concerned about the souls of our kids, first and most? Elizabeth George wrote this, A godly mother is one who loves the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then passionately and consistently and unrelentingly teaches her children to do the same. Moms, love your children, but love them first and most with the gospel. Verse 5, Paul says they need to be sensible. They need to be level-headed, reasonable, not not hasty in their decision-making. They know how to share advice, and they know when just to be quiet. And they know when they share advice, they know how to share advice in a way that that people are going to be able to respect and listen and take the advice that's being given. Sensible means that they they keep their mind focused as much as they possibly can on Jesus Christ because they realize that the gospel is the greatest good in their life. The most sensible thing they can do is to think on Jesus. Paul also says they need to be pure. Purity is a reflection of faithfulness. It means that you're faithful to Jesus, you're faithful to your family, you're, you're faithful to whatever your responsibilities are. Purity means... That when you don't get what you want for Christmas, you don't check out on Jesus and quit going to church. Purity means that when the test results don't come back in the way that you prayed for them to come back, you don't say, God, I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. Purity doesn't look at the family and look at the job and look at the responsibilities and say, you know what? I'm not getting my way, so I am out of here. Or I'm just not going to do it. See, purity is faithfulness. Purity is sticking to it. Purity is is honoring those commitments. And so, when there is a lack of purity in a person's life, one of the questions that should probably start stirring in our minds is this. Can this person really be trusted? If there is a lack of purity, it's not just in one thing. It can spread out into everything. Ladies, be pure. Pursue purity in how you think and how you talk and how you act and how you live. And again, let me just note, as I've said the last few weeks, does that sound like something that only young women need to do? Or do all of us need to be faithful and pure? Next, Paul says, workers at home. Now, does that mean that it is always wrong for a woman to take a job outside of her house? No, it does not. My mom's taught school 28 years And she faithfully served the spiritual and the practical needs of her family. That's not the picture here. But the scripture is pretty clear that when it comes to the family, the primary calling of the mother is to serve the needs of her family, to meet the needs of her family, to to love her family in such a way that that they get her love. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the supposed to be a little woman at home with the apron, making sure the house is clean and biscuits are on the table. That's not what it's talking about. Now, I mean, I'm really cool with the biscuits on the table part. I mean, that's not a problem, especially if there's bacon in the biscuits. You know I mean? That'd be great. But the picture here is, is not that. The picture here is actually more in God's design of creation. 
Because God has designed for women to be superior in men in, in lots of different areas. And in particular, when you think about the home, what you're really looking at is a small business. That's what it is. It's, it's a small business. And some may argue, and not every single woman on the globe, but generally speaking, God has designed women to be better than men at running an entire business all by themselves. Just look at Proverbs 31 for an example. And so the picture here is not a workers at home as some big awful thing. See, this isn't communist Russia, but you know what? We think like it. That's what's scary. In our culture today, we, we look at this picture of family and home and go, oh, that's a domestic prison. That's the opposite of what we should be thinking. In fact, the family and the home is the cornerstone of society. John Benton wrote this. If Jesus himself has been subject to the Father in heaven and has gone there now to prepare a home for us, then being a homemaker is a high calling and not something to be despised. <laughs> That's a tricky way of talking about it, right? Hey, Jesus is a homemaker. What are you going to do? you going to tell him he's wrong? I like that thought, though. If the reality is, and the picture that Paul wants is just put some love in your home. Don't let your home be fifth on your list. Don't let your marriage and your family be the tenth thing that you do every day. You know why? Because home matters. I was talking to my friend Nicole one time on the phone, and we were swapping stories about school with our kids. And she said, I don't even know what I said, but this was her response to me. She said, Dow, don't apologize for home. And she's right. We shouldn't apologize for home. Home matters. Home is a place that matters to God. It's a place that should be good. And listen, we have a lot of bad homes in our culture, in our society. And so moms, do, do everything you can by the strength that God gives you to make the word home in your family a good word. Next, Paul says they need to be kind. Be kind, considerate, to be thankful, to give more grace than nagging, to not be a drama queen about every single thing that happens. It means that you're supposed to be kind even when your husband and your kids are not being kind to you. And husbands, you're supposed to be kind even when your wives and your kids are not being kind to you. And kids, you're supposed to be kind to your parents even when your parents are not being kind to you. Why? You know what? Kindness is catchy. It's catchy. You watch. You start being kind to others and it will catch on. Be kind to your waitress today instead of complaining about how the butter didn't have enough butter in it. That sounds like something I would say. Can I have more butter? Maybe that's it. Be kind to people, but especially be kind to people at your home. Be considerate of who they are. I would say being kind to others in the home might be the greatest thing that a mother can do. You know why? Because the house can be clean, and there can be a great meal on the table, and the kids' clothes can be perfectly pressed. But none of those things look and feel and have the same aroma as a kind heart and a kind attitude. Ladies, pursue kindness in your life. Pursue kindness in your home. Next, Paul says, being subject to their own husbands. <laughs> yeah, this is where, you know, preaching through a book of the Bible gets you in trouble, right? It's not like you can skip over the verses. I heard this week on the radio that the hardest doctrine in Christianity is the doctrine of submission. You know why? Because none of us want to do it. None of us really want to not get our way. No, we want to fight for our rights. We want to say this is what 
I deserve. Submission is opposite of our nature. And although it may not be popular in our culture, it is still a very, very serious matter to God, particularly when it comes to the life of a husband and a wife. So husbands, you need to submit to Jesus. And then you need to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And how did Jesus love the church? He died for her. He gave his life for her. I mean, I hate to tell us, but here in America, I would say at least for 100, maybe 200 and 300 years, I don't know how much longer, but, but we have a really bad track record at this. By and large, in our culture as men in our country, we have a, a bad track record of, of by and large, on the whole, loving our wives like Christ loved the church. We ignore our wives, we pander to our wives, we ridicule our wives. We'll let our wives lead us around on leashes, we'll do whatever they say anytime they say it, or we'll be rude and we'll demand things of them that we shouldn't. But loving them like Christ loved the church, it's not seen like it should be seen in the life of a man who calls himself a Christian. Man, we're dropping the ball, and we need to stop dropping the ball. No matter what age you are, no matter what you think you've experienced through your whole marriage, no matter if you've, you and your wife have it all worked out after 25 or 30 or 50 years, every man who's a husband in this room, we need to go out of our way to start loving our wives like Christ loved the church. It's the call in our life. And guess what? It actually has positive results. <laughs> it actually has a, a track record of success in God's eyes. Husbands, let's love our wives like Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to Jesus and then be subject to your husbands. What does that mean? Well, it means to be a companion. It means to be a helper. It means that you don't spend every waking day or even often bucking everything that your husband says or does. But you just learn to be a team. You learn to work together. That's the general idea of what Paul's writing. Now, let me branch out just for a moment just to be clear. If your husband is doing something that's radically dishonoring Jesus, then you need to pray for his conviction. You might need to pray for his salvation. If your husband is abusing you in any way, shape, or form, you need to pray for his conviction, and you need to pray maybe for his salvation, and with wisdom, you need to do everything you can to protect yourself and your family. This is not foolish subjection. This is not going along with anything. This is with wisdom honoring God. We're not talking about abuse. We're talking about if he wants to watch a different TV show, don't make it an event every night. Husbands, don't do the same thing with your wives. You see, this command of submission is not some mean old-fashioned rule handed down by some mean old-fashioned preacher with big hair and a big mouth a couple hundred years ago. That's not where it comes from. You know where it comes from? You might be surprised where the idea of submission actually comes. Susan Hunt writes, I cannot give logical arguments for submission. It defies logic that Jesus would release all the glories of heaven so that he could give us the glory of heaven. Submission is not about logic. It is about love. Jesus loves us so much that he voluntarily submitted to death on a cross. You see, the wonderful cross of Jesus is the most profound expression of submission ever. And so the cross becomes our motivation for while we submit to Jesus and while we follow God's design and God's ways in all the other relationships 
in our lives. And why should older women teach those kind of things? And why should younger women pursue those kind of things? Well, look at the last thing Paul says here. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Back in March, the Sunapee Middle High School cheerleading squad won the Division Four Trophy, state championship trophy in New Hampshire. That was just a few months ago. But they are no longer the current state champions. It's not because another competition has been held, but something different happened. You see, on the day of the competition, their coach went back and was just looking over the scoring, and he realized there were some errors in the scoring. In fact, the winner of the competition, the winner of the trophy, was actually Newport, about 10 miles away. Now, those girls could have said, you know what? <laughs> Tough. You know, it's not our fault the judges can't add. Hey, we worked hard, and, and we got the trophy, and that's just how it is, and better luck next year. But that's not what they did. Two days later, after they won the trophy, the coach and the cheerleading squad went over to Newport. And in a presentation service, they gave the trophy to the other squad. Now, does that sound like something that would have been easy to do? Not at all. In fact, one of the cheerleaders, Haley Morin, she said this. We definitely feel good about what we're doing right now, no matter what it feels like inside. <laughs> Bless her heart. You know, but, but it's true, right? You know, we, we know this is the right thing, but it doesn't feel right right now. Make any connection with that in marriage? I don't feel like loving right now. But because Jesus bled for me, I think I'll give it another shot. I think I'll give it a try. See, the feelings may not always be there, but we choose to love because of the gospel. We choose to love because of Jesus, because Jesus would never choose to love us. We did nothing to cause him to say, yes, I can't wait to suffer for Tao. He's such a great guy. No, we, we love because we have been loved. And we love because by this, by this Jesus, we know what love is. Why did those girls give that trophy back? Because they wanted something more important than a trophy. They wanted to be sure that they kept their integrity. They didn't want to dishonor their own names or the name of their school. Moms, I can tell you this. I cannot imagine some days the things that you have done, the things you are doing, and the things that you will do. And I cannot promise you that anybody's going to show up like Publishers Clearinghouse on your door one day and say, here's a trophy for being a great mom. You're the Division Four state champion. But I can tell you this, that what you do is not a small thing. You see, God has actually called you to do something that really by design men are not designed to do. See, God's called you to take the most normal, common, mundane things of life and to turn those common, mundane things into some of the happiest and most blessed moments that are ever lived. See, God calls you to take his truth and to put it in the common things and make the common things extraordinary. Ladies, your family... They need you to be extraordinary. Your church needs you to be extraordinary. 
your community, your country. We need you to be extraordinary. How in the world can you be extraordinary? Here's how. Love Jesus with everything that you have and help other people to do the same. Love Jesus Christ first and most and then passionately and consistently and unrelentingly help other people love Jesus and do the same. Let's pray.